You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Wednesday, March 11th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The results for Super Two for Tuesday are in, and it was twice as terrible for Bernie Sanders as was imagined. As of this recording, Joe Biden got half a million more votes, 68 more delegates, and won a kind of referendum race in Michigan where Sanders did very well in 2016. In 2016, he won by 17,000 votes. This year, he lost by more than a quarter million. So perhaps you've been hearing this. You know, maybe Bernie Sanders, maybe he was really never that popular. Maybe all he was was the guy who ran against Hillary Clinton and running against Hillary Clinton usually makes you seem a lot more popular than you are. Yeah, maybe. But I have an additional take on this. When I say I have an additional take on this, I really do mean that. Here it is. It wasn't Bernie Sanders' strength against Hillary, symbol of dynastic, centrist, neoliberal power, also victim of cruelty, sexism, hoaxes, and Russian mayhem. It wasn't necessarily his strength against her as much as it may have been the structure of the nominating contests. Maybe some, or really quite a lot of Bernie's support was simply a function of the system being skewed toward the undemocratic form of non-elections that we call caucuses. Bernie didn't win Iowa, but he did really well. And he almost won Nevada. He lost 20 to 15 delegates. Those are caucus states. He did win New Hampshire this time, maybe because of geography. It's state next to Vermont. And then he lost the first state to have an actual fair democratic primary without a huge built-in geographic advantage. But in 2016, all the caucuses then exaggerated his appeal. Let us take Washington. Washington was a big win for Bernie in 2016 when it was a caucus state. He beat Hillary three to one in the vote, and that was the same ratio as the delegates that were awarded. But now that delegates are awarded in a primary, Bernie is essentially in a tie with Joe Biden. There's still a third of the vote to be counted. In fact, in 2016, there actually was a primary in Washington, too. They called it a beauty contest primary. It didn't mean anything. It was later in the calendar. Bernie seemed weaker then. But, you know, in that primary, Clinton won the vote. And this is, I think, important. In the primary, 800,000 Washingtonians voted. In the caucus, which was the thing that actually counted, only 26,000 people voted. When the contests were skewed toward the extremely passionate or maybe even the extremely passionate who are also able to give up hours of their day to a bureaucratic exercise and performative democracy. Given those circumstances, Bernie did well. Absent those circumstances, Bernie largely didn't. Now, 2020, we are absent those circumstances. Some more data. In 2016, the first 35 days of voting, Bernie wins eight contests. One is his home state in Vermont. One is New Hampshire, the neighbor state. But of the other six, 
five of the six were caucuses. And since I always say there's no such thing as winning a state, and I hate to commit that sin, his only double-digit delegate gains were in caucuses and in Vermont. Hillary was gaining in delegates, and her wins were in the hundreds of thousands of votes because primaries encourage participation. Bernie, when he gained delegates, it was on the basis of something like 26,000 people in Kansas voting. Not for him total, or the 19,000 people who voted for him in Nebraska. Seriously, the Nebraska vote in 2016 was 19,000 to 14,900 something, and Bernie netted five delegates. Bernie Sanders got 78% of the votes in Idaho when it was a caucus in 2016 and won it going away. Last night, Joe Biden beat him. And the difference is, I think, not so much, oh, Idahoans love Joe Biden so much more than Hillary. I think the difference is how many people were asked to participate. When 22,000 hardcore people participated, Bernie had a huge advantage. Last night's primary drew 100,000 people. Bernie lost. Now, in 2016, Bernie did have that big win in Michigan in early March 2016, just as he lost Michigan early March 2020. In other words, last night. But other than Michigan, in March of 2016, he lost every state that had a primary and won every state that had a caucus. So here's a theory. Bernie Sanders was actually never that popular, and Hillary Clinton might have been a little unpopular, some evidence of that. But Bernie's popularity, such as it was, was highlighted and multiplied whenever there was a system of heavily suppressing voters otherwise known as a caucus. 2020, the system opens up, fewer caucuses, Bernie does much worse. This also fits with everything we know, actually, of Bernie Sanders and the Bernie Sanders backers' theory of the case, that he will inspire a revolution. He is about depths of passion and massive overhauls, not a mere preference or a pivot back to normality. I think this gets at the question is, who is democracy for? Right? Bernie's always saying, oh, it shouldn't be for the few who have the money. We call that a plutocracy or an oligopoly. But Bernie and his supporters are foisting a fervocracy on us. Government by and for the most fervid, those with the most fervor. Maybe there's some strength to that, but I don't think so. I think a busy voter who doesn't want to be a community organizer, but also does want a functioning government, has as much right to that vision as the activist does. If we go by the rules of fervocracy, Donald Trump and his lunatic true believers do a lot better than a lot more sensible people. So maybe last night and Super Tuesday and all the weeks in South Carolina are not a referendum on Trump or Biden or Hillary or even Bernie himself. Maybe they're just a rebuke to fervocracy. Maybe now the fervor has broken. On the show today, Bernie is staying in and he's in it to win it. Well, not to win it, but he is in it to spin it. We will discuss that on the spiel. But first, more with yesterday's guest, David Plouffe. Why not hear from Obama's former campaign manager how he did it and how he's advising Democrats to beat Trump now. The Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump and its author, David Plouffe, up next. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. In presidential elections, it's a truism, but it's also true, I think, that the argument from the heart usually beats the argument from the head, that voters go by emotion. Has that been not, not, I mean, you, Barack Obama is a brilliant professor. So not to totally throw out any intellectual argument, but in general, do you think the emotional argument trumps, no pun intended, the intellectual one? Well, I don't know if it's intellectual. I still think, you know, the policies and what you're going to do and who you're going to fight for are super important, but that's got to yes. be married to those more personal attributes. I mean, the selection of a president for Americans is incredibly personal. They're going to have to live with this person. You see this in some big cities in terms of mayor's elections as well. It is an incredibly personal thing. So do you like the person? Would you like to have them in your living room or now we'd say on your phone every day? <laughs> you know, that's a big part of it. I mean, I think, listen, Obama in 2012, when we won a really tough reelection against Romney with still very high unemployment rate, I think he won reelection for two reasons. One was even though the economy was still recovering and a lot of people were not pleased with the economy, they said, you know, at the end of the day, He's going to fight for people like me and Romney won't. Now, part of that is because we did a good job of tattooing Romney. But, you know, people just thought that about Obama. And it's interesting that the skinny black guy, Barack Hussein Obama, was able to do that well in exurban and blue colors, which makes me think, you know, Biden and Sanders ought to be able to do that. But right. I think secondly is they just liked him. Right. And yes. so that's another yes. question where it's yes. like if Trump wins, we'd say, well, it doesn't really matter your character anymore, or your ethics like, you know, just doesn't matter. And that would be so toxic for the country. So, again, we're not going to get rid of Trumpism if we get rid of Trump. And I'm not suggesting that he's an aberration, but I do think that that like still liking the person, still having people of character, I think that matters. And that, by the way, that is something Joe Biden has in such abundance. I saw it firsthand in 2012. My father died. I remember talking to my mother. I, I'm sure I talked to her every day, actually, you know, uh, in, the, in the days after the funeral. And uh, I remember like a week or 10 days after the funeral, I'm talking to her. She's like, oh, Joe Biden called again. I'm like, what do you mean Joe Biden called again? It's like, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you, you called last week. And he just called today <laughs> and spent a half hour on the phone with me. And my, Joe Biden didn't know my mother. Yeah. And he never told me he did that. By the way, he, there's tens of thousands of stories like that. He is such a special human being, and I think, and his his story of personal tragedy, and 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 yet he gets up and continues to fight. I mean, I think for a lot of people, actually, the speech on Saturday was the first time maybe they saw the power of that in terms of what that could mean in a political campaign and in a presidency. And so, to your point, that's not a policy, but I think his empathy, his understanding comes through in that regard, and that's the type of person I think most Americans would kind of be cool you know, happen in their life for a few years. Right. So there is some thought that maybe we've regressed to an error where you can't look at that favorable, unfavorable rating and think it means anything. It used to be somewhat determinative. Oh, now, of course. Just throw it away. Well, I don't know if you throw it away. So, you know. Well, maybe no one could get over. No one can ever be more favorable than unfavorable given our well, polarization well, in the media and Facebook. So absent, you know, if we're at a war the public would support, I think any president's going to rise again. I don't think you'll ever see anybody get to 90 again uh, like George H.W. Bush did uh, or even George W. Bush, you know, in the, in the, in the weeks after 9-11. Um, yeah. But, you know, Trump's approval rating is still an important factor. And, and, you know, in most of the battleground states, you know, he's in the 43 to 46 range. And, you know, now he won the election with 46.1 percent of the national vote. 
But, you know, even if the third party number is high again, and that would be tragic if it is, you know, we still got to get kind of 48, 48 and a half would be my sense. So that delta between the vote percentage he needs and his approval rating is problematical for him, which is why they're spending so much time and money and attention on trying to find, register and turn out people who look just like their base, because he is not going to his addition is not going to come easily through persuasion, but it will come through that kind of work. And I always tell Democrats who are a little overconfident, I say, let's look at two things. 2004, Kerry Bush, Ohio. John Kerry produced about 600,000 more votes than Al Gore, more than enough they thought to win. And then George Bush found every conservative in Ohio and got him out. Yeah. And let's look at Florida. Defense of Marriage Act uh, That was part of it. On, yes. Yeah. That, yeah. But they did. I mean, it was like mm-hmm. people didn't realize a Republican could get that many votes in Ohio. And then 2016, and again, Trump's campaign was much more ramshackle than it will be this time. But if you look at the turnout in Florida, I think you're going to see that type of turnout everywhere this time. And, you know, the Trump did got a huge turnout in Florida. Again, Hillary got more votes than we did, and we won the state twice. I always tell folks – you know, what What the nominee needs to do is, you know, say if, if our data suggests that Trump is going to get 1.575,000 votes in Wisconsin, let's say, we better assume he's going to get 1,650,000. Like, let's just model this at a range that's uncomfortably high for Trump and build right. a campaign to reach that. I, I think that's critically important. It's swinging, it's swinging two bats in the on-deck circle, yep. isn't it? Yeah. Does Pete Buttigieg have a political future? If so, is that in Indiana? Well, I mean, he is an incandescent talent. And so uh, maybe he does something in Indiana. You know, Chastin's, a, you know, works in education. Maybe they'll move somewhere else. Maybe he's in a cabinet. I don't know. You know, I work for somebody who was pretty agile and intellectually curious and I thought was thoughtful and, and could even do nuance in a way that didn't seem waffly, right? I mean, Pete was just really special in that regard. So my suspicion is he does. But, you know, it's his life, right? So, you know, maybe he wants to go back in business. Maybe he wants to teach. I, I don't know. I will say this, though. Like, it's another lesson. So Pete didn't win. But let's remember, like, he lost to Tom Perez in a DN chairs race. He didn't even make it to the finish line. Yet there was a few days there where he looked like he had a good chance to be our nominee. So people run for president usually too late, not too early. Imagine if Barack Obama had listened to most people's advice and not run in 08 and ran in 16. Well, at that time, you know, he would be at the end of his second term of the U.S. Senate with all the barnacles of Washington. I mean, so uh, that is the lesson, I think, is most people run too late. So I think, you know, while Pete didn't win, you know, I think part of his appeal obviously was generational in his talent, but he ran at the right time. If you were a Bernie supporter, what arguments would you use right about now to try to woo Warren supporters to your camp? Well, I think obviously there's philosophical agreement on a lot of issues. I do think that Warren's vote here, my suspicion is, you know, and there's data on this pre-Super Tuesday, but I think a lot's changed since Super Tuesday. You know, if you have 10 Warren voters in Michigan right now, uh, you know, my guess is at most six vote for Bernie. So I don't think it splits in a dominating way to Bernie. But I think it's philosophically, for those that then would be interested, it's like it's not just enough to beat Trump. We've got to bring about big structural changes, as Elizabeth said, and Bernie's the right person to do that. But, you know, my suspicion is we're going to see Biden 
benefit from the Bloomberg withdrawal with not all that vote going to him, but a lot more of it than not. And my guess is the Warren vote is relatively split. So in your book, which I read, A Citizen's Guide to Beating Trump, it really is directed at this election. And I just had on Eitan Hirsch, and we talked about just getting involved more in politics. If you had to choose just one, I mean, there's an urgency to this election, but is it always the best way to throw yourself into a presidential election and to hope that this will be a regular habit in your life? Maybe it's better to get involved, do the presidential electioneering, but get involved on the really micro or local level where you could see the actual effect of what you're doing. Well, it's a great point. And I say this in the book, which is I think the ideas I have in this book and the rationale work for any race from city council or state representative to president. So you should do that, of course. I wrote this. There's so much focus. So I hope, by the way, that, you know, folks who read the book and may get inspired to do a little bit more, try something new, you know, they do that in 2022, you know, in 2024, and they do it in local races. You're absolutely right. But the message of the book is really whether it is a local race or a presidential race, and presidential race is even more important because it is so big. So the question I get all the time, understandably, is how can my individual effort really matter in this big country with all the money and the debates and Putin and Moscow? And, and that's why, as you know, in the book, I really break down the math. And like I did a book event yesterday uh, in Washington where, you know, I got asked the question, which is, you know, you you go out and you work hard. And what if you only like really think you had an impact on two people? And it's just like go into it expecting that's all you're going to do. Like part of it is your expectation and be cool with that and say that I know there's 5,000 other people today in Wisconsin who are doing the same thing I did. And so if we had – whether it's registering or – persuading someone, you know, that's 10,000 people and that's Saturday. And then Sunday, there's another 10,000 people. And if you do that in all eight weekends of September and October, that's 80,000 people, which is, by the way, almost four times uh, more people uh, than Hillary's deficit. So that that's the thing. You just got to yeah. break it down, right? And the other thing I tell people, too, is like, you know, if whether it's Biden or Sanders, they're going to have to hire a huge campaign. So if you have a, you know, maybe you're an accountant, maybe you're a designer, maybe you work in digital marketing, like go work on the campaign, you know, go to Philly, you know, go to Vermont. But if not, you know, if you've got your normal job, then it is this type of voter contact. And the other thing I spend a lot of time on the book is, you know, uh, offline, I think conversations with voters are still the most effective, but this battle is going to be largely fought on our phones. And, you know, I think a lot of people post 16, the toxicity of social media want to stay away from it. But we all have to engage sharing positive content, creating our own content, fighting back lies and distortions, because that's the battlefield. And, you know, they have such an institutional advantage with Fox and Breitbart and Sinclair and all these properties that nobody really knows where they come from, that that millions of dollars are spent every day moving conservative and pro-Trump message. Uh, We don't have that. What we have to have is a citizen army. By the way, do you think that this industry of uh, political campaigning is good enough at identifying the person in the mailroom and elevating them to CEO status? Probably not. Although, you know, listen, my journey in politics, I think, is not the exception. I mean, in politics, if you are doing a good job and you're working hard and people like you, like you you move up really quickly. Now, I think that was more unique back then in, in that time because our society and our economy is more hierarchical, right? Now I think it is more common for somebody who's 24 to get a lot of responsibility in the private sector, but campaigns are great in that way. And so, you know, I always tell people, you know, you may start out as an organizer, which 
nothing is more important than an organizer, so they should be exalted. But, you know, in a couple of years, you can be running something uh, and managing big teams. And so that's great. You get a lot of responsibility early if you show that you, um, you know, deserve it. Yeah, but then again, you ran a campaign against William Roth, and he was a nice man with a St. Bernard, and I have a Roth IRA. <laughs> you so. do have a Roth IRA. That's a, by the way, that's a great, you know, to your point about, you know, when you win, you're smart, and when you lose, you're yeah. dumb. Like, that was 94. Probably a lot of your listeners were too young to remember that, but that was an absolute landslide Republican year. And it was an example. So I was working for the Attorney General. We ran a great race. We became, a, you know, a kind of national focus on it. It was actually one of the better campaigns I managed. Mm-hmm. But the tide was so strong against us. You know, sometimes that's what happens. Where you make the big difference is when the tide is neither strong nor weak on your behalf. All the campaign activity in the world is all about the margins. That's all it is. And you could right. say, that's crazy. Well, Things are won or lost in the margins, right? So well, that's why that's why they pay Mariano Rivera a lot of money. Exactly, and that's who, who get it, get three outs. Exactly, yes. get those three outs, right? We we often, I, you know, Axelrod, my old co-conspirer in so many things. You know, he would often call the campaign the field goal unit. You know, it's three yeah. points, and and I think that's probably right. Yes, this was great. David Pluff, campaign manager for Barack Obama, is out with a new book now called A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And now the spiel. Bernie Sanders canceled a campaign rally in Ohio last night out of concerns regarding the coronavirus. Joe Biden did too. But let us take this time to acknowledge that Bernie Sanders is in fact fundamentally a person who lives in the real world. His dreams may be more fanciful than most, but for all the criticism that he gets and that he deserves over plans that can only come to fruition with a political revolution sweeping all corridors of power, in his day-in, day-out life, and his belief in things like, I don't know, that evolution has occurred and that vaccines do fight diseases, that actually puts him squarer in the reality community than the majority of politicians in the Republican Party and some people who we think of normal. That said, Bernie does have his extravagances. And what was on display in his announcement that the campaign would go on, the dream will not die. Part of his justification, in all senses of the word, is that he says he and he alone He's the one bringing up the issues that are galvanizing the Democratic Party and Democratic voters. Without him pushing for Medicare for all, there would be no Medicare for all. Wait, there isn't Medicare for Shut up. You're an old incrementalist. Okay, okay. Ah, an old incrementalist, which brings me to the other part of the Bernie spin and a part that is especially stupid. Here is Bernie Sanders making his argument that beyond being a champion of the issues, he is a champion of the youths. And that the young, they're so much more important than the olds. But it is not just the ideological debate that our progressive movement is winning. We are winning the generational debate. While Joe Biden continues to do very well with older Americans, especially those people over 65, our campaign continues to win the vast majority of the votes 
of younger people. How is that winning the generational debate? Sanders has a tiny half generation, Gen Z on his side. They're 24 or 25 and under. Very few of them in the electorate. Then with millennials, yes, he does hold sway over them too. Though as older millennials who are approaching 40, they do tend to get lumped into the next demographic when exit pollsters do their polls. They're with Gen X and he's not winning with Gen X and he's not winning with boomers and he's not winning with the silent generation. And there are still some very, very old people, the greatest generation. He also loses them. So thank you, greatest generation, for winning the war. You could have done something a little more about segregation when you had the chance, Ralph. But Bernie Sanders making the case that his generation or his generation and fraction of a generation is better or more important or winning than the three and a portion of generations that Joe Biden has, it makes no sense. It's Charlie Sheen-esque in its assertion of winning. Why is that one and tiny bit more of another generation? Why is that the most important one? I guess because they're the ones who support Bernie. Oh, and then there's the children of the future thing, and we'll get to that. But I just want to point out the sheer ridiculousness as touting as the best base of support to have the young. Because in truth, they're in fact the least likely group to vote. If there is a competitive race or a race competitive enough for me to be talking about it today and CNN and MSNBC to be doing the big wall-to-wall election thing, it must mean there are at least two viable candidates. And while it's possible for each viable candidate to have the exact same strengths in every demographic, just one has more, or maybe they're both tied, I guess that's technically possible. It's actually never happened in elections. In elections, one candidate has strengths with some demographics, be it, uh, be it by gender or race or age or college education, and some candidate has strengths in other demographics. Now, of all the demographics you would want to least have strength in, or if you had a draft, all right, let's pick the demographics. Who are you going to do best with? And you take into account the sheer number of potential voters in each demographic, right? So there are more white people than Asian people. But you'd also have to take into account that, you know, white people tend to split their votes more than Asian people do also. The worst, I would think the last pick in that demographic draft of generations for who you'd want to support and who you'd want to rely on are the young. The young just do not vote. They never have voted. They maybe voted more two years ago than they did six years ago, but they voted almost none at all to really almost none at all. I don't know. Maybe you have a different impression, and I understand if you do. There is a drum beat, well, it would be like a drum machine beat or, um, or like a garage band beat, saying that the youth slayed it in 2018. This is from a Now This video, literally titled, Young People Straight Up Slayed the 2018 Midterms. Young people killed it this election. Finally. <laughs> that was Ben Wessel of Next Gen America, getting bleeped. Oh, he said fucking, by the way. Getting bleeped while he was laying the real factoids on you. We just saw the highest turnout in a midterm for young voters since they lowered the voting age to 18 in 1971. The smartest youth vote researchers say that 31% of young people ages 18 to 29, like me, turned out to vote this year. What? 31%? That is amazing. Can I get a what what? You cannot because 64% of boomers voted. Okay, boomer, actually more than okay. Pretty impressive, especially when compared to the under 29s. For the first time in history, by the way, more of my generation, Gen X voted than not. Why? 
because we're good people and understanding the stakes. No, it's just that we're getting older. It's how it always works. The older you get, the more likely you are to vote. It has always been this way. It will always be this way. There's a lot of marketing and messaging telling you the youngs are the most important. But as far as which slice of your electorate you would want to support you, they're the least important. They're the least important because they vote in the least number and they will always do so. They will do so this election. They will have always done so in past elections. Sure, they're the raddest and they are the best at social media. And they got a strong emoji game. And they're really good at telling you how badass they are. This big new youth wave could make the difference again in 2020. In truth, they're not so badass at voting as they are bad at voting and kind of asses about it. Look, we're all asses. There's no such thing as a young person being inherently better than an old person. It's just what's true and what's not. And it's not true that young people vote in impressive or even acceptable amounts. I was once young. Perhaps you were once young too. We weren't worse people or better people then. I mean, maybe you were. I wasn't. I was pretty much the same. Then grew progressively larger and with less hair on my head. It's also hard to vote. And the younger you are, the harder it is. And I do not like to blame generational cohorts, but nor do I like to unduly credit them. I just look at arguments as good or bad. And I can't think of a worse argument than we are a very viable and powerful political movement because we do well with this one age cohort and that age cohort is the one least likely to propel a candidate to electoral success. Today I say to the democratic establishment, in order to win in the future, you need to win the voters who represent the future of our country. Self-serving, inaccurate, and largely irrelevant. To win, you have to have more votes, to win more votes, you have to appeal to the people who vote. That happens to be the exact opposite of the Sanders coalition, such as it is. Look, I think all candidates make the argument that their voters are the most important voters because their voters represent where the country is heading demographically or where the country is today or where the country once was or that their people are the silent majority or their people are the active minority and that the active minority is no longer going to be quiet. I mean, if manatees got the vote and a candidate's support was 80% manatee, we would hear about how the heretofore largely unseen sea cows are now being seen and will not be cowed. But really, for all the flaws of our democracy, we are still one person, one vote, none more important than the other, no matter their race, age, or creed. In fact, that used to be the very definition of our functioning democracy, not a cudgel to be used to argue against it. That's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the associate producer of The Gist. She has won the generational argument, as well as the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational argument. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He has sadly lost the muppetational argument, as will be indicated upon Gonzo's attempt to operate a brass instrument with disastrous results. The Gist. And I'd just like to clarify, I looked over my statements. I actually don't have a Roth IRA. I do have many investments with my advisor, Ira Roth. You can see why I got it wrong. Oomperu deperu doop. Oomperu deperu doop. And thanks for listening. <laughs>